Hello and welcome back to Invisible Machines, a podcast produced in partnership with UX Magazine and OneReach AI. Uh, Rob, another fantastic episode. This is a trend here, I guess. Today we're talking uh, with Laura Herman, who's a senior research lead at Adobe. And this, this was a fascinating episode for me because we spend a lot of time really digging deep on the relationship between creativity and, and AI and what it means to be an artist and to create artistically. And it was interesting because I was, I was having this really in-depth conversation with that- somebody about our conversation on this podcast. Uh, and it, it was really quite moving to both myself and this person. And then right as we're finishing up my phone dings and there comes a message from you that I'll, I'll just read right now, uh, because okay. it really kind of blew our minds. Um, so here we go. Uh, your words. We are moving into an era, or I'm sorry, I'm going to start again. We are moving into an age of hyper discovery and creativity. Creativity will accelerate at an unprecedented speed as we go from skilled art creation to art discovery. Same as it is said that math is not invented but discovered, the same is now obviously true for art and creativity. People will engage in discovery in all disciplines of art, not just the ones where technique was honed. Society is now unburdened by the challenge of learning the skills to craft, ushering in the discovery of art by anyone. We see our environment in the rearview mirror. Our past defines our present. Art is a window into our environment as it is, not as it was. Art helps us move forward. Overwhelming creativity leading to a society filled with sophisticated palettes, an optimist might see this as societies evolving at an unprecedented rate, an age of enlightenment, driven by art explosion <laughs> yeah it's the backstory is i literally wrote that to you while i was at a kid's birthday party and <laughs> oh, perfect and 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 if anybody wonders what introverts do at kids birthday parties this is this is a this is a window <laughs> into that um i i loved i love this conversation with laura she's a researcher researching how art is appreciated which i think really connects into the whole McLuhan you know, version of because media, I mean, it's just, it's super fascinating. And to research it, to take a researcher's perspective on what is it to appreciate art? How is it appreciated? What is art? Um, and then to kind of join that with some of Don Norman's thoughts around design versus art and explore that with her. And then the fact that she, that she, you know, words are colors to her. Uh, yeah, synesthesia. Yeah, which is just <laughs> super fascinating perspective for her to have as a researcher and to bring to the table. Um, I I found this, yeah, to be a, a really interesting uh, kind of philosophical delve into creativity and, and where we're all going. You know, absolutely, yeah. pretty cool, and how it connects with technology on so many different yeah, levels. So. Yeah, let's let's let's, let's uh, get into it. All right, here we go. All right, well, Laura, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to see you. Um, I think yeah, what, one thing that, that really stood out to me as I was looking through uh, materials on your blog was that you, you created an art project during the pandemic kind of around synesthesia. Um, and there were a lot of interesting elements to that art project. But one thing that resonated with me was that you went into it not necessarily feeling like you were an artistic person, if I'm remembering right. You're like, you see yourself as a creator because you were able to create and then you were able to share that art. And, and it sounds like it was well received. 
Um, so that's an interesting concept. And then we were also, Rob and I were just kind of talking about the fMRI uh, article that you were quoted in where you, you kind of point out that there's a possible uh, use case for something like that with people who have uh, motor disabilities and, and can't really express themselves, but now they can maybe see their thoughts take the form of expression, uh, artistic expression. So, so maybe we could start off kind of jamming on those interrelated things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that sounds great. I've been thinking a lot, actually, just even in the past couple of days about how generative AI has these uh, this push and pull, right, where it, it unlocks so much more creativity um, for people who maybe don't have access or are physically incapable of creating using the sort of standardized tools that we've had for for years, um, but on the same uh, by the same token, because it lowers that barrier to entry, there's a lot more room for bad actors. There's also um, a lot more room for sort of like replacement of the sort of traditional creative roles, right? So there's there's these tensions that we're grappling with. On one hand, this like exciting unlock and democratization and access. Um, but on the other hand, like the potential negative um, externalities of that, um, trying to figure out how to balance those two, I think will be a challenge we'll be grappling with for quite a while. Um, but yes, in terms of the the synesthesia artwork that you mentioned, um, well, first of all, I'm honored that you you even looked at it. Uh, so thank you. Um, but yes, it was it was you know one of those early pandemic projects that I think many of us had where. We found we had more time on our hands and suddenly felt like we could we could do things that we didn't previously give ourselves the permission to do. Um, and I was experimenting with um, something that I've always been fascinated by, which is perception. Um, and I think that I have I really identified for a long time as a researcher and I still do. And I think that's still core to the, you know, the primary way that I would introduce myself. Um, but I've been a researcher of perception and then specifically of like perception with and around and of um, artworks. But I was not someone who made those artworks. I enjoyed looking at them. I enjoyed thinking about looking at them. I enjoyed watching other people look at them. Uh, but I didn't necessarily make them myself. Um, but that was sort of intention with um, my own synesthetic experience, which most people immediately when they hear you have synesthesia say, oh, you must be an artist or a musician because that's how uh, so many um, previous synesthetes um, have identified. I was just like, I just can't make stuff. I just like looking at stuff and talking about it. <laughs> uh, but the interesting thing that I realized is that I could like leverage how my own brain worked to create something that um, other people could then experience a peek into my own mind, I guess. Um, and that's something that I personally would want to do. Like one of the benefits of art for me is getting that lens into someone else's perception of the world. Um, and that particular project I sort of was almost inverting my natural synesthetic experience. So currently when I'm talking, when I'm listening to you talk, each individual letter has a color and the word has an overall color based on the combination of those letters. And that just happens naturally and fluently and automatically and has been that way my whole life. Um, but what I was trying to do in this art project was take colors that already existed, in this case from sort of forgotten, thrown away paintbrush palettes and come up with words that got as close to that color as possible due to their combination oh. of letters. Um, but usually when I see colors, I don't see words. I just uh, see words and therefore, and then see colors. Um, so it was this really interesting like exercise where I actually was like sketching by writing out words 
that's sort of how I was testing out the colors. I'd write out the words, like, oh, no, that's a little bit too pink. Or like, okay, yeah, there's a little a little more blue in that one. Um, but it was just me listing random words that I could think of going through dictionaries. Um, so it was actually a way that I could be comfortable with visual creation that wasn't and that wouldn't have seemed inherently visual to other people because it was textual work that I was doing. Um, so, yeah. That's kind of interesting. You see, you hear the word, you see the color, but you you don't see the word backwards. So if you see the color, that- you don't see the word. Mm-hmm. So it, you don't really know what color the word's going to be until when, until you think it or until you say it or until you hear it. Any, any of the above, actually. So if okay. I'm reading, each word is in a color. If I'm thinking, um, I personally read my thoughts. That's a whole other conversation, which is like, what are <laughs> thoughts for different people? Like, do you see your thoughts? Do you hear your thoughts? I personally read them. And so as I'm reading them, I see each individual letter. Um, just at the instant at which it is recognized as a letter, it instantly has a color. Like, I can't see a letter without a color because they are, mm-hmm. um, I guess, in uh, neurologically, those two experiences are literally fused together. So the letter part of my brain, so to speak, uh, automatically triggers the color part. So um, it doesn't matter whether it's written or spoken or thought. Um, it's always just automatically there. Um, yeah. Hard it's to a describe. stupid question, but I can't help it. When you, when you see the word that is a color, is it the same color as the word? <laughs> oh, <laughs> Great question. It is not. Um, and it actually is really challenging for me. Um, I don't know if you've ever done, they call them, I think, the Stroop test, where um, it will be color words. So like the word blue or the word purple right. written in the wrong color, and you have to try to read them out and okay. start reading the word purple as yellow, and it, it just gets overwhelming. That is exactly what I would experience if a word is written in the wrong color, because I'm reading the word... Um, and you can see that it's written in red ink, for instance. But like to me, it's purple. So there's this sort of conflict um, okay. happening in real time. There's a interesting story actually once about where my the color perception slightly by like a millisecond preceded the word perception or the letter perception. So I was I was a kid playing that game in the car when you're extremely bored on a long road trip and you're. You're, the goal is to look for a word um, that starts with each letter of the alphabet in order. So first you have to see I, a word that starts with A and then and then find the letter B and then find the letter C as you're driving down the highway. And um, I think I was on the letter K and I was trying to find the letter K and I was like, oh, there it is. I got it. Um, but it was actually a speed limit sign that said 40. But 4 and K are the same color in my mind. And so okay. I saw the purple and I assumed it was a K but it was actually a four. Um, and at that moment, I realized like these two things are happening like sort of pre-attentionally, which is really yeah. fascinating. But Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. interesting. Well, how, how do you, the, sorry, Rob and I are going to hit you with all these silly questions, but when, when you're seeing the color, <laughs> is it like you're seeing it in your mind or, or is it affecting like your visual plane as well? Yeah, it's a great question. It's hard to describe perfectly, but there are two types of synesthetes in this regard. So some are projectors um, and some are associators. The projectors are literally projecting um, the color into the physical real world space. Um, And the associators, it's like more in their mind's eye. Um, I think that my experience would be more of an associator experience 
but it is a very strong visual experience um, where I feel like I'm seeing it, but I'm seeing it in my mind, um, uh, almost photographically. Um, so I, I kind of describe it as two layers where I see the colors that the word really is, um, but then I see my colors like layered on top of it almost. Um, Interesting. My colors being... Uh, yeah, they're your colors, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you have your own I, colors I, because, yeah, because <laughs> they're your words. Yeah. <laughs> I, I only have one more uh, synesthesia-related question, but I, like, I have tinnitus fairly severely in this ear. And well, now is it all, like, it, like it's just kind of always there and, and I'm kind of tuned it out? Is it something that you, yeah. is, is kind of a present distraction? Can it be distracting or is it something that you, are able to kind of tune out or is it, is it like enhance your experiences? Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know what your experience was of like, if it was, um, if you've always had it or if it was like this, like onset for me, because I've always had synesthesia, I haven't, um, I haven't really tuned it in or tuned it out. It's just like, this is a uh, fact yeah. of life. And I had to learn to realize that other people don't experience this. Um, but because it is a fact of life, um, I think there are definitely a lot of situations where I am not attuned to it. Like, you know, when I'm speaking every single day, thinking every single day, all day long, I'm not like, oh, look at that color, right? It's just, just like you <laughs> yeah. don't think about the individual letters you're saying, right? You're, you are just saying words and trying to communicate ideas and all of that. Um, but there have definitely been times where it's been um, distracting. And I think when I was younger, especially, I needed to sort of like learn um uh, to deal sometimes where there would be a bunch of color stimulation, like it's just another layer of input. Um, yeah. And so if I'm in a crowded room, hearing uh, hearing many conversations and therefore seeing all of the colors of those conversations, sometimes I would be a little um, confused about which, uh, which thread I should be following, so to speak. But um, I kind of have just gotten used to it, um, trained myself over time. So Wow. And so that... Yeah. I guess you you've had to spend a lot of time thinking about perception. Is that is that perhaps where your 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 real interest in perception took root? Was just in that, in that you definitely were kind of definitely. I mean, it totally traces back to when I first learned that. Uh, well, when I first learned that other people didn't see letters as colors, and I was like, "What do you mean?" And so I started asking all sorts of questions um, to family and friends and teachers, and then eventually we realized that what I had was synesthesia. And then I still had questions, right? Like, well, why do I have this? How does it work? Like, uh, is this my brain messed up? Piece. You know, yeah. as a kid, you're kind of... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so that was actually like the first few research studies I did. Um, and I'm actually really grateful because um, I wasn't really much of a math or science kid before. And then it got me totally into the field of science research. I ended up working in a vision science lab um, while I was in, in high school, and my, my project was around synesthesia. Um, and it was really interesting, fascinating, for, like good motivation for me to get started. I did not want to stay in that field forever and like being this tiny little synesthesia niche. Also partially because synesthesia is, um, it's fun and interesting, but for the most part, it doesn't have extremely negative implications. Um, there's some exciting opportunities when um, the neurological underpinnings of synesthesia are sometimes linked to similar um, similar situations with like uh, epilepsy and autism. So if you understand how some of those neurological um, 
functions are implicated. You can learn things about other, um, other, I guess, I don't know what the right word is, but other neurological conditions that, um, that would, that are useful. But I didn't want to just be doing this like fun, interesting research. I wanted to do something like a little bit more impact. So eventually I broadened my scope from, from synesthesia. Um, and, uh, yeah, but that is definitely what started my interest in, in perception was just realizing, oh my gosh, if I see the world so differently from everyone else, how are all these other people seeing the world differently from each other? Um, and just real, you know, it really hits you over the head that like perception is not vertical, what they teach you in every perception science class. You're like, yeah, every one of us is seeing the world in a different way. So, mm. yeah. yeah, I can't help, but like my brain's echoing here with like McLuhanism stuff, you know, the concept that, that art is a combination, a combined co-creation of the artist and the viewer and and so, you know, some portion is done by the artist, some portion is completed by the viewer, depending yeah. how high fidelity or low fidelity it is. And so all art is only half done or some portion done and then completed. And then you come across somebody in your, uh, in your position where it just becomes so clear that what you see um, is it's a complete that that art is going to be so different from what I see. And, and so therefore, you know, the, we're both, we're both looking at the same art, but we see something completely different. And, you know, that obviously gets into other areas of like arguing about which, whether it's, it's, it's nice or not nice, ugly or, <laughs> um, yeah. you're like, well, we're both seeing different things. So we're arguing about different things. Um, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. It's... I've been really um, in influenced, I guess, by like Gombrich's The Beholder's Share, right? Like, what is this share? And it's exactly what you're saying. This like the share of work that, or not work, maybe the share of creation or uh, perceptual experience that the viewer of an artwork takes on and how that then shapes the piece, uh, both for right. themselves, but also as an in independent entity mm -hmm. and and it's interesting because i i totally like completely believed that for a long time and it was sort of core to how i perceived um perceived the perception of of artworks <laughs> but i've definitely talked to some artists who say no like i'm not a commercial artist i'm not making stuff just so it can be seen i'm making this artwork because i have no choice other than to make it and i'm making it to um to unleash my own creativity and that it's not solely with the intention of being viewed by someone else. And even if no one else viewed it, it would still be artwork. Um, right. It's, it's like an interesting, um, it's an interesting and very valid, I think, uh, pushback against that like sort of beholder share question. And like now I'm starting to think a lot about intentionality and the role of the artist's intentionality in um, in the creation of a piece and then the subsequent perception of that created piece. Um, and, I, you know, naturally when I look at a piece of artwork and probably you as well, you think about what, what was the artist trying to convey or how did they do this? It can be like just uh -huh. physical intentionality. It could be uh, conceptual intentionality. Um, and the interesting part now is like with these new technologies um, shifting the 
visibility of intentionality um, mm-hmm. and shifting how that intentionality is brought to bear on the ult- ultimate artwork. Um, there's yeah, there's just so much to to think about in that space. Yeah, it's funny too thinking about like uh, music and movies in particular, um, and maybe it's it's more in that focused time of adolescence. But I feel like people come to define themselves around certain works of art that they internalize at this yeah. like really high degree. Like your, you know, the songs that capture your your heartbreak or your triumph or whatever, and then the movies that sort of you know re- represent who you think you might want to be. So there's also this element of of uh, I don't know if that's completing the art or it's kind of internalizing the art and transmuting it into into something else, into a, a persona, a personality that you share with the world. Yeah, it's interesting because then how much like ownership do you have over that uh, yourself, yeah. right? Like if it becomes a part of your the fabric of your um, personality, uh, mm-hmm. there's actually this really interesting tension where like the artist created this to convey something you've taken that and made it your own. Um, and some artists would be very excited about that, right? Like that means I'm really like impacting my audience. But then other people would be like, hey, that's my work. I don't want right. uh, someone potentially who I disagree with. Like you can imagine, um, yeah, someone that they maybe wouldn't want internalizing and using their mm-hmm. artwork uh, doing that. And suddenly they're associated with these ideas that they don't follow. It's just a really interesting question of like the bounds of ownership and influence yeah. Um, for for an artist and then their subsequent artwork too. Yeah, I think that's that's uh, that's like one of those slippery slopes. It's so hard to to draw uh, boundaries around this idea that art belongs to you because you because you came up with it. But did did you or was it channeled through you by your inspirations and other things? And then the moment you share it that it continues to belong to you and it doesn't belong to those you've, sh- you've shared it with. But it's, but there's so much evidence that shows that once you've sh- you, you share art, the more you share art, the less it belongs to you, right? The, the more society, uh, whether you like it or not, the more society uh, takes ownership over it and decides what happens to it and what it means and um, it's, I feel like that's true for so many things. I, I think even as an entrepreneur, it's true for a company because you start a company and it's just you. And every time you add a person, right, to your company, it's not yeah. yours. It's, it's all of yours. And then you share it with customers and then they decide what they want your product to be and they start influencing it. And everyone feels a right to have an opinion. And at the end of the day, you realize that it goes public, and now it's a public company, and and I've, it's right. like it's <laughs> almost like the beginning of a company is the beginning of letting go of of your art, right? You, like if if you fight that, it's just inevitable that in success you will have to let go of it, unless we redraw the lines of what success means to successfully create art. Does that mean that? many many people appreciate it or does it just mean that you do (laughs) you keep it in a room locked up and only you look at it Um, exactly it's totally like the metrics of success determine uh, determine everything i guess in this case like if the success is having a public company with 
high stock price, then yeah, keeping something locked up in your room is not success. If it is <laughs> about um, having space to visually experiment, then maybe you can just keep it locked up in your room. But, um, but yeah, going to what you were saying, Rob, about the opening opening up a company or a product um, to not only other employees, um, but also to to users or customers. I think that's um, that should be the goal, right? Like in, in my personal view, and I realize like that's not everyone's goal, but um, the more people that you have feeling invested uh, in the, the workings of and um, display of and um, experience of the, the product, hopefully the more useful and powerful and um impactful that that thing will be and i obviously i as a as someone with a ux background i strongly believe that and that's my day job is is trying to make sure that those um those users voices are incorporated into yeah yeah ux is like the opposite it's like the it's like the idea of accelerating giving it away <laughs> you know, you're yeah, trying exactly. to like <laughs> you're trying to do it on purpose and as fast as you can right um exactly and so yeah it's it's very tough because like is is creating a product art right you know like we 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 have these definitions of art and artists and you know i have a lot of friends that are designers and wear the designer uniform you know the tattoos and the um, and they say it like, you know, I, I, this is my designer uniform. Um, and, and there you go, well, arts for artists, but you know, really we draw these lines. Like clearly you just realize, oh, I'm an artist cause I, I made art, but no, you were always an artist apparently. Right. Well, and, and who determines what art is right like i think right. something i've been thinking a lot about is is these cultural gatekeepers so um previously um the definition of what art was and you know i don't think there's a single definition of what art is but the sort of like cultural expectation of what art was um was determined by gallery owners or museum curators or these people who could put something on a pedestal and like Duchamp was clearly playing with that when he, you know, put put the urinal on the pedestal and said, well, because it's in this gallery context, now it's art, right? And the people who have art the power. because I say it's art, yeah. Exactly. And and he was in a unique position as an artist because he had the power to choose what work he was putting on display in the gallery. But someone who's really? maybe starting out before you get have a reputation, you're reliant on the gallery owner and the uh, curator or whatever to choose your work. And then put that on display. And that then becomes our cultural definition of what art is. And I think there's been a lot of excitement um, around some new technologies, even like something like Instagram, enabling um, people to share their artwork with the world without some gallerist or curator like putting their stamp of approval on it. Mm -hmm. You can just directly share it. People can see it. They can appreciate it if it resonates with them. Um, and it doesn't matter whether you're maybe uh, living in, in uh, the global south, whether you're a member of the global majority, like 
you have space in this online context. That was very exciting for people. The, the change now is that um, we cannot all see all of the content and all of the artwork that is posted online, right? Like that view I just described is idealistic because it assumes that I can go and look at every single piece of artwork uh, uh -huh. posted not only by everyone um, in the global south, but everyone in the world. And, you know, even if I spent every second of every day just looking at artwork on Instagram, I would never even see a quarter of it, you know, for the rest of my entire lifetime. And so therefore, we have to have some way to determine, again, what is rendered visible, what is put on that pedestal, the equivalent of being hung in the gallery. Um, and instead of a gallerist or curator that we would have previously relied on to make those decisions, now, um, in many cases, it's algorithmic platforms that are making the decision about like what you see. And I think that we've kind of like shifted that curatorial um, displaying power from, yes, the, you know, there's many problems with these sort of like elite institutions that were rendering certain people visible. But now it's instead like a big tech company deciding what's rendered visible. And I don't know which is better or worse, but just important to state, I think that like, it's not a neutral democratized platform necessarily. Yeah. There's still decisions being made about what is put on pestle, what is considered art and, um, and unfortunately, and I think they would admit this, like the big tech companies, they're not designed to be art platforms. So they're not right. thinking about what is art and let's optimize our algorithms to display right. art. <laughs> like, um, So then it's like, where do those decisions get made that you're saying, Rob, about like someone's deciding who art is or what art is? What art is? Um, yeah. I think that's a unique perspective or maybe not unique in a smaller community, but unique broadly that art is decided by those who own the surface. Not those who own the art, <laughs> not no. the creator, but the person who owns the surface, whatever, whatever surface that art's displayed on that's, and the person that grants rights to that surface that allow other people to see it, they're the decider of what art is or isn't, um, versus the, the author of the art, uh, who, well, I don't think it's the, creates it. Yeah. The, the surface owner, as you, as you call it, like is not necessarily the owner of the art, but they're the determiner of the what... The decider that, yeah, what yeah, is exactly. art. Yeah, right, right, right. Exactly. Good point. Good point. Exactly. Very important distinction. Which you distinction. think is, it's, it's similar, but different. Yeah, so... Yeah, yeah very much so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. It, it doesn't become art until they say it's art. And then once they say it's art, you now, as the artist, own it. You own <laughs> art, but you didn't until they said it's art. <laughs> Exactly, um, and this has so been like happening kingmakers. Yeah. <laughs> for so long. It's the system of, I mean, I think, um, yeah, Howard Becker, the sociologist who wrote about art worlds in like the 80s or something is talking about, oh, the systems of distribution determine um, not only what art is in that society, but also the artworks that people therefore end up making. And so therefore the right. system of distribution is actually a co-creator of that artwork, which is taking mm -hmm. my argument maybe like slightly more to an extreme but it is interesting if you think about like these uh, surfaces having input into what people make that then it's I, shaping being made and therefore shaping maybe aesthetics or um, or media types or genres of, of yeah. artwork. So now we get to AI that that designs things, right? <laughs> I don't I know how else to say it, right? Uh, creates art. It doesn't. It designs things and then 
and then somebody else decides if it's art and and that surface decides that this thing's art so it out it goes to the world um becomes art and nobody owns it because that artist was an ai apparently um unless some human puts and they're trying it seems like they're trying to draw some some boundary here that says unless they put some percentage of effort into it altering it then it then it suddenly becomes their art um that's like in my mind almost impossible to measure or prove or anything <laughs> um so that's where i get kind of lost in who owns this art well it's also uh, impossible to and, like and that's imagine that there would be of, oh well like an effective algorithm for judging what is art right. like how, how would you even go about designing that it, it seems like it would it would maybe yeah. need to be customizable it would have to have all sorts of temperature gauges so everyone can yeah. kind of set their own parameters which i don't know how useful that is in any use case <laughs> yeah i think it's really it's really interesting to think about um those those questions because yeah, there's this sense that we're like, oh, just we'll just create an AI that does that, that sorts it according to creativity then, or sorts it according to art. It's like, well, we've been doing research for hundreds of years to try to figure out like what art even is. Like, we don't even have a written definition, let alone a definition that we could like translate into a quantifiable metrics, which I can imagine would be just a complete mayhem into trying to like right. first define art, like good luck, and then take that definition and say, oh, yeah, can we boil down into these three variables that relate to each other in this way? And you can just sort sort things accordingly. I mean, I'm sure many people would say, first of all, that that's impossible. But second of all, even if it was possible, that that would almost eliminate the entire beauty uh, and like sort of of the subjective art experience, which is, again, inherently subjective. Uh, we're trying to like objectify these things that are not um, not possible to objectify. And I I can say this because I personally at one point was one of those people. I was a very naive, um, uh, like first year PhD student coming in. And I was like, everyone's talking about, you know, creativity and technology. And in order to make creative technology, we need to understand what creativity is, come up with a framework for that that can then be measured in the context of technology. Then we can optimize the technology for creativity, like pretty straightforward. And then <laughs> obviously in my first like term, it was just immediately like, uh, you realize that we don't know what creativity is and also that we could never measure it, right? So I don't know how you're going to do any of this, um, which was an extremely important learning experience for me. Um, and so I'm like trying to pass that on to other people who hopefully will uh, also give up on their dreams of quantifying creativity <laughs> because I think that would actually be a huge mistake. Um, so. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it comes yeah, I... down to people want to find a way to make money in this world uh, making art and maybe that's just the question we should we should all address not how do we retain the same methodology but more like what is the new framework for this and how can people continue um, to make money making art but more importantly like how can we even add more people to the pot so that more people can make money making art. Because I think, like, you know, those folks that get paid to copy from one spreadsheet to another spreadsheet 1,000 times a day, 
um, that hate their jobs would love to make art and get paid, you know, (laughs) instead of that. Um, And so I guess we just have to think about how to redefine, you know, how to reward artists for their creativity um, in a way that, you know, still, still allows them to make art so that art isn't made by machines because no one can afford to take the time off of work. Um, but right, I, think I think there's that's... also an issue that's like, if the works, if the machines can make art, then they can do your work. So then, then you're not taking time off of work. What are you taking time off of to make <laughs> art? Or are we just all making art? Although <laughs> <laughs> it's so interesting. I saw some, some like meme or something that was saying like, we have now made uh, AI that can make art, but we still ha- don't have a robot that does our laundry for us. Like, if we focus <laughs> on like the things that we don't want to do, like right. we actually want to make art. Like, that can we not? You know, um, yeah. and I just thought it was you funny because yeah, like exactly. <laughs> like, can you can you fold the clothes so I can make art versus making art so then I have more time to fold my clothes or so? You know, it just yeah, seems yeah. inverted. But um, yeah. but yeah, the the, the worry that. I think I sorry Josh the the worry that I think has come up recently is like yes we want more people to be able to be empowered to make art for sure but as you have more people in the space typically then like the the rates go down right like to be competitive um like I'm certainly not any sort of like labor economist but I think um we want to make sure that like there is more room for creative labor um and also that wages rise versus, yeah, any, anyone can make art and be paid for it, but they're being paid some um, dismal sum right. for that work. Yeah, it's never yeah. been easy to, to make it as an artist. Um, cool. And it's, it's concerning, I guess, to see generative AI encroaching on that in some ways. But then there's, yeah, there is also this possibility that maybe it's not that everyone gets paid for their art, but that we find ways of making money or, or earning an income or providing for our loved ones that give us way more time to be creative. And whether that's, you know, painting or writing music or whatever, like the options there. And then there's also that the element we kind of alluded to earlier, where now we have tools so that people that would cringe if you suggested that they might make art now maybe feel empowered to wait. Yeah, I think I could express myself this way or that using these tools and getting into it. Exactly. And I think it shifts the role of the the person creating needs different skills, right? So like maybe that person and that person may have been me actually like cringing if I needed to make art. It's like, oh, I'm such a bad drawer, right? But it's like, maybe I don't need to draw anymore. Um, and what I need to do is to be able to have ideas and have to like imagine things. Um, and I also maybe need to be able to curate. I need to go through like an array of options and choose mm-hmm. which ones I want to select and how I want to lay those out. And um, and I maybe there there's other um, tasks that are like skills that I would need to have, but those skills are not the physical generation skill, but yet they're still artistic and creative skills. Um, wow. Just different parts of that creative workflow are coming to the surface. Um, which, you know, might be unlocking for some, right? Like if I have a lot of great ideas, but I can't draw, then that's great. But maybe for the person who, um, uh, 
you know, it wants to just copy from from reality and just like draw what's in front of them, maybe that's less ideal. Um, so mm-hmm. it's just a, it's like a rejiggering of the creative workflow in a way. Yeah, we were talking to Seth Godin recently in, in one of our prior podcasts, and he kind of brought up a really good point, which is um, a lot of us, you know, I, I was sort of posing the question because art, art is about fresh, right? It's about uniqueness, you know. Um, and I was, and he talks about purple cows, you know. Uh, and if you're familiar with that, it's the whole like, you know, you're on a long road trip and you're always passing cows. All of a sudden, a farmer paints his cow purple, and everyone's talking about it. And you good? Um, and uh, and I, you know, I asked him like, could could AI create purple cows, right? Because it's always sort of generating stuff it's seen. Um, and his point, which I agree with, it was that, yeah, it can, but it doesn't know when it has. And it's going to create a lot of really dumb ideas. And yeah. people still have to curate it, as you said. And the good taste still has to. So so now instead of, yeah, authoring it, um, we're curating and we're, we're finding... Uh, what are these, let's say, mutations or these like unique things that we think matter, and people, that's and that's art, right? Exactly, but and and that goes the, back the, to what we were talking about at the beginning of the intentionality, right? Like, it's the purple cow is like funny and interesting and cool because you know someone like painted their cow purple, um, and that you know is is fun and great, <laughs> but. I don't know if you've seen that example. This was like in the early days of uh, when Dolly 2 first came out. And if you put like salmon in a river, it shows you like fillets of salmon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's like, and it's funny because it doesn't get it. And like that, it's the actually, um, someone the the other day was saying it's funny because we're laughing at a product failure. And like how many times like a, UX person, do we see users laughing when the product totally <laughs> crashes on them? Like it's actually <laughs> a bit more enjoyable when things fail these days. But um, but I think like that that salmon thing is like it's interesting and it has like a short term little like ha ha. But right. um, the intentionality of a human making an active choice um, it still seems more worthwhile and more valuable. Um, and yeah. that is where and the human is the curator of like right. all different pieces coming out of these different systems. Um, I'm writing a short piece with um, an AI artist named Memo Atkin. I don't know if you've seen his work, it's really wonderful. Um, and he's talk- talking explicitly about this, saying how like, as an artist, I no longer need to physically generate. Those skills are not what are valuable for me anymore. Instead, it is about the imagination and it is about the curation. Um, and that's where, you know, drawing is the long division of uh, of yesteryear, right? Like before the before we all came to be totally reliant on calculators. Um, yeah. But he, of course, still views himself as an artist, and like what he's producing is is artwork. Um, it's just that his the skills that he would probably want to optimize for in an art school curriculum might be more curatorial ones than they are generation ones. Yeah, and well, even if a, a generative AI can draw you know at some point better than most humans are capable of it wouldn't necessarily negate the value of teaching of learning to draw of going through that process because 
like those processes are processes of self-discovery, which I think is something that, you know, we've talked a bit about in this podcast, you know, in the current framework, generative AI can't really create anything without a person feeding it a prompt. Um, but, you know, I guess suppose it could get to a point where there is a generative AI that's somehow prompting itself and just creating stuff all the time. And even if it created something that checks certain boxes for being magnificent, it feels like the core element would be missing because the core element of the art and the way we've been talking about it is that it affords an opportunity for, for two people to connect who aren't even in the same room. They're connecting through this experience that's been uh, you know, brought to bear in the form of a painting or, or whatever else. So there is this uh, missing piece that it feels like we'll always, there will always be a hole no matter how sophisticated these systems get. Yeah. No, I think, I think that, um, that aspect of humanity is, is really interesting and important. I, um, just did a large scale survey with a collaborator of mine, Katerina Maruzzi, and what we were looking at was the role of, um, embodiment in uh, perceptions of creativity. So what you're describing of like, if the AI just comes up with its own prompt, prompts itself, makes the thing, there is no embodied experience there. I mean, I guess you could argue the person who originally coded the, the AI um, was an embodied human who did a thing physically to then result in that uh, ultimate output. But there's been a lot of research that shows how when we're looking at artwork, we... Um, we care about the embodied experience that went into creating that artwork. And even in my own work, I've seen people value uh, pieces where you can see visible brushstrokes much more than a piece that was made digitally where there's no trace of the human embodiment. Um, and so what we were curious about in this study was, what if you showed the embodiment behind, say, like a generative artwork, where you showed someone coding the algorithm, you showed someone typing in the prompt and then choosing from the options of the prompt and then potentially like going through the process of Bob Ross for AI. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, it was. It's. It was actually really interesting because, and there's been so many studies, and you've probably seen them, where if you put um, an AI generated image and a human human made image in front of someone, they'll always say that human made image is more creative, more valuable, more everything because we as humans, um, you know, care about that. But suddenly, when you showed the human process behind the um, generative work, people valued those two outputs equally. Um, so there's this sense of like, if you show that embodied process that goes into generative work as it currently stands, right, where there is someone prompting it and coding it and curating from it, that then the appreciation of creativity and the role of the human in that um, actually does create then value and, and, and creativity, um, perceived creativity on behalf of that artwork. So there, in this particular case, there wasn't a difference between a hand-drawn illustration and a generated work, generated work in terms of perceived creativity when you showed that embodiment, which I was actually somewhat surprised by. But it's really interesting when you think about the future of, future of perception of generated works. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like there's there's going to be um, so much more content uh, coming our way. I, I'm trying to remember the I was watching a webinar, and someone was describing. I believe they were calling it Mega Feed, and it was this idea they had about 
kind of a future state where generative AI, it's, it's so cheap and easy to create that whether you want it or not, you're just getting a constant stream of like, here's a movie starring you. Yep. And, you know, here you're having that conversation on a fishing boat you never got to have with your dad. Um, and I mean, that is kind of a frightening thought, but it's for me, it's hard to imagine that something like that would be as impactful as like we were talking about earlier, like hearing the right song at the right time in your life in the right moment and developing an emotional bond to it, um, as opposed to just being force fed, you know, kind of like these uh, cinematic memories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cinematic memories. I love that. Um, I do think it's interesting when you're talking about these. I mean, I, I've been thinking less about it being personalized for you, like the movie starring you and like you on that fishing boat, but more just about we're already being fed content based on the machine's perceptions of our tastes and our interests, right? Yeah, like yeah, yeah. Review page on TikTok, the explore page on Instagram, or even just the feed on Instagram, right? Like. It says, you like this, I'm showing you this. Um, There's like a bi-directional thing going on there where people then perceive that as their taste, whether or not it actually is. Like, that's a whole other conversation to have. That's already happening. At the same time, what's already happening is AI is generating content according to certain specifications. You can imagine those um, those two paths converging and resulting in AI generated content that is optimized uh, and like m- generated in real time according to your tastes and your interests. And th- then cutting the human creator out of the loop entirely. Um, there's a lot of reasons why I, you know, hope that that doesn't happen. Yeah. And like you said, Josh, hopefully there's a sense that like um, what I am seeing, like what I want to consume, um, I want to consume because there's a human behind it. And like hopefully I would know that there wasn't a human behind that and then choose not to invest so much time in that space. But if you think about like the motivating economic factors and the ability to like create something hyper personalized that captures your attention and with just in time product placement and advertisements, um, the business case for that sort of possibility is quite strong. Um, yeah. And it is, a, you know, some version of that is, it, it is not impossible. So yeah, not. yeah I think, also, when you think about the concepts of, of you know, usually art, often art's part of a, another experience. Like it's embedded, right? It's like this nested well, yeah. thing, like Pantone colors, right? There, that's an art, and then and then people use them to create art, and then that art sits in a room that's been designed by an interior decorator, and that art piece is just one of a total experience that then is you know, in some sort of, you know, you know, wedding venue and there's a wedding planner and it just keeps going up this chain and you're like each one an artist creating an experience at the end of the day, like as you kind of go down from moment to moment and you say, what's, what do all these things have in common? It's that ultimately it's trying to create an experience for someone else um, and for other people. And that's, that's kind of at the heart of, I guess, experience design. And this, this was something that um, uh, we were talking about um, with Don Norman just recently, <laughs> where he makes this strong distinction between artists and designers. And he's like, yeah. artists make stuff for themselves and designers make stuff for other people. 
Um, right. What do you so, think of that as a perception? Well, it's know? interesting. That I was, it sort of goes back to what I was saying at the beginning when when you were implying like art is made for other people to perceive it and that beholders share. Mm -hmm. Like um, that that resonates with me personally um, as either an artist or a non-artist. However, I uh, I guess should or shouldn't identify. But the um, what I've heard from many artists is is more in line with what I, what I guess he was saying, right? Where no, I'm making this artwork for myself and because I have no other choice than to put these ideas to paper and it's not about someone else seeing it. Um, I think that going forward into the future, there's convergence potentially between art and design. Two things cause me to think of this. One is this whole idea of content creation. I'm always struggling and you've probably heard me even in this conversation, like, toggle between talking about content and about art and the mm -hmm. boundaries between those two being very blurry like we're talking about instagram as a platform that displays art but it's certainly a platform that displays content but like content maybe is the macro space that art exists within i'm sure some mm -hmm. artists would take issue with that right so then is it art and content are separate or content is part of art like those boundaries are extremely blurry and i think you can imagine designers designing content artists making artwork um and those two those two borders uh, somehow fusing together um and then the other um issue or like thing that this causes me to think about is this idea of like the ux of art this is something that uh, the serpentine galleries in london have been writing about it's this like uxification of of artworks because especially as artworks are digital there is going to be a user experience or a viewer experience of that artwork that will look somewhat similar to the considerations of current like digital product UX. So how does someone come into contact with this? Like what are the sort of functionality mm -hmm. options? It's the, the layout and design. And um, there's all sorts of questions about interaction that is afforded by digital artwork that with physical artwork, you know, usually we can't interact with it. You can't touch it and move oh, it around, but with digital artifacts, in some cases you are able to do that. So then there's this whole other layer of um, user experience to consider. Um, and ever since I like had that UX of art term in my mind from the Serpentine, I just see it everywhere and I just see it exploding more and more. So I think those boundaries are actually gonna come closer together, though I agree that th perhaps that was the distinction between art and design in the past. Yeah, that's, that that's really interesting. I, I, I know that you've, I, th I think you wrote something about the need for tools to be more multi-sensory. And, and when I think about the way technology is accelerating, it feels like our experiences with technology are bound to become broad, kind of more uh, multi-sensory and like these tapestry kind of experiences. And in a setting like that, where there will be more content, um, you know, setting aside whether or not everyone would agree that some of it's art and some of it's not, it's going to be part of a, of a rich experience that will have to be designed on certain levels. So like you're saying, in that scenario, art and design are sort of collaborators, right? Totally, totally. It's not like coexisting within a single entity. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, like I know there's, uh, recently was seeing sort of a preview of a piece that Gabriel Masson made. He's a, an artist based in Berlin from Brazil, I believe. And it's a it's essentially a gameplay experience and it's in virtual reality and also on the web. Um, 
but it's an artwork and he identifies as an artist and it's being put on display in a museum. Um, but the considerations that he made in developing complex, multi-dimensional, multiplayer game experience in a 3D engine um, are quite reminiscent of some of the uh, the considerations that I know colleagues that are UX designers make, right? Like, how does the person enter this space? Like, what are their options? Where right. do they see? Where do they go next from here? Um, and so exactly, as you're saying, Josh, as, as the artworks themselves become more immersive and they are in inherently more multi-sensory, at the same time as the platforms and surfaces themselves are becoming more multi-sensory, right? Like we've gone mm -hmm. from the static like square box of Instagram to this like immersive full screen experience of sound and video on TikTok, like that continuum uh, just projects into more and more immersive experiences that are more and more multi-sensory. And I think that the design role, like the experience design role is, um, I believe, more and more important because it's not just about looking at one flat thing. You're suddenly considering um, movement, you're considering sound, you're considering this bodily embodiment, you're considering relationality between um, individuals in a similar space. Um, and the interplay of all those variables makes everything extremely more complex. Um. I think it allows too for the, the categories of art to broaden. Like I feel like more things can become art. You know, Rob and I, I feel like I've had the conversation multiple times about conversation. Is conversation an art oh, form? No. Because it really is, especially on this podcast, right? It's yeah, clearly on this podcast. Really? Is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, the, the process of having a conversation can be very artistic in a way. Um, it, it's almost like art on the fly in some ways. It, it just depends on like what your metrics are, I suppose, for... All comes back to metrics, unfortunately or fortunately, I don't know. But um, <laughs> yeah. it's the same question of like, yeah, what what counts as as art? But of course, conversations as a medium are particularly relevant in the past few months, given all these conversational uh -huh. interfaces, right? So even mm -hmm. if the conversation itself is not art, the conversation is being used to create art. So it's therefore the input and it's the intentionality going into the formation of the artwork. So that gives it a role in the artistic process automatically. And then if that conversation itself is artwork, which I can very easily um, imagine and be convinced that it, that it would be, uh, then there's layers of art within conversation. So. Well, in your brain, it's definitely art. We all know that. <laughs> Sometimes it's very ugly with colors. That's really cool. People always assume it's this beautiful rainbow that's so yeah, right. But then when they oh, ask yeah. what their name is, and I'm like, well, it's kind of this warm brown tone. Which, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of beiges. <laughs> <laughs> but if someone's name is like kind of color clashing, is that is that a bad sign or is that just going to happen <laughs> no, sometimes? <laughs> no, I always say it has nothing to do with you as a person. It's just <laughs> that you, that your parents chose for your name. Um, but I've certainly offended some people inadvertently by telling them the truth. So yeah, don't take it personal. But you're khaki. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Nice. Was, <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been great. Um, yeah, really appreciate you coming on. I'm, I feel yes. like. Yeah, I'm glad we didn't plan this conversation. It just we took it in places that you know uh, I felt we would have never gone. So this is great. Yeah, we've we've definitely moved into some new territory. So we really thank you. <laughs> no, of course, and and I appreciate it. Um, and again, I'm sorry about all the back and forth, but it's been lovely chatting with you both in this 
artful conversation. Yes. Um, yes. And thank colorful. you for the great questions and thoughts. Yeah, very cool. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks again for hanging out with us right here on Invisible Machines. Thank you, as always, to the team at UX Magazine, especially Kate Timchenko, the marketing team at OneReach AI, Elias Parker and Natalie Budziak in particular work very hard to make this podcast great, as does Michael Litvinoff, our video editor. Please subscribe to UX Magazine wherever you get your podcasts so that you can hear new episodes as soon as they come out. If you want to watch new episodes, and I recommend you do. The, the video feeds are really pretty amazing. Follow the Invisible Machines YouTube channel. And uh, I think that's all I have for you this week. So let's go ahead and look forward to next week when we will connect again right here on Invisible Machines. Mm -hmm.